Good morning, everyone. Happy Advent. Father, we love you. Lord, those words do not really grasp the depth of our heart's affection and adoration and worship and thankfulness for you, toward you. But we do say that this morning again. Father, we love you. We are so grateful to be yours. And we ask today that the Spirit of God would instruct us, not just in understanding, but in heart application and bringing to us the reality of these truths, that we might walk in them, Lord, that they might change the way that we think and then the way that we live. Just pray especially today for those who are here and those who are, might, might be watching who are um, lonely, disenfranchised, feeling cast out or not seen, that today, Father, in your grace, the spirit of adoption would embrace them and speak to them of who they truly are in Christ. So we thank you for your word and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as uh, Matt taught so well last week, by the way, I am proud of him and his growth and maturity in the Word of God. Um, I was telling someone the other day, I listen to him sometimes and I think, wow, he went past me like I was standing still, you know. He did such a good job last week teaching on the truth of redemption. And I wanted to just kind of remind you what we are trying to do in this four-week study. As Matt said last week, Advent, the word means coming. It looks both backward to the first coming of Christ, remembering the first coming, and it looks forward to the second coming of Christ. It looks backward to his incarnation, to his humility, to his sacrificial love being expressed, and it looks forward to his triumph, to his great victory being realized as he returns to establish his kingdom and to usher in the fullness of the new creation. Don't you long for the new creation? And as Matt said last week, we are also <clears throat> wanting to build a bridge from our study uh, in Hebrews, just a wonderful period of weeks and months studying this incredibly deep, profound, and beautiful book that spoke of the excellencies and the supremacy of Jesus Christ, him being the fulfillment of all of the old, wanting to build a bridge from that study into this Advent season. And we want to do that in a way that not only would help us to uh, appreciate uh, the truth of Advent, but I think as well to take, to, to realize what we often take for granted. And to recognize, to do this by recognizing the beauty of the means by which God has given us a foretaste of that which will be ours for all eternity. Just as there were types and shadows in the old, 
and the book of Hebrews pointed that out again and again. It's interesting, the Bible says that those things pointed toward that which is, listen, true. That's the word the Bible uses. And so today, we are yet awaiting that which is also true. Because we are living in between the time of his coming and the time of his return. And as the Old Testament saints were waiting for that which was true, that would fulfill all that the sacrifices and the law and the prophets spoke of in Christ, so now we are awaiting that which is true in the final culmination and realization of all of redemption's purposes. Look with me. Let's begin by reading from Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to look at a number of texts, and I think we'll have them all up for you on the screen. But I want us to just remember this from Hebrews 8. And I love how he begins this. He says, now the point in which we are saying is this, that we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, listen, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Listen, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Brothers and sisters, today we yet are living in, in experiencing patterns of reality. Patterns of the true reality. And here's the issue at hand. That unless we understand and appreciate them, we will miss their significance and their importance in our lives. And worse than that, we'll take them for granted. They'll become to us optional, perhaps. Or things that are simply addendums to the busyness of life. They become religious artifacts that we might recognize as being important to some degree, but we fail to realize the reality that they represent that is for us something that is eternally true of what we have already been given in Christ, but yet have not fully realized. Your heart and my heart should be longing for those things. That longing should make us, in a holy sense, discontent in this world where we will never be satisfied by it, where we'll never be surprised by its demise. It's necessary that it comes to its end so that what is true can be realized. That's what we're speaking of in this Advent season. These things which are true Matt spoke last week about redemption. Though it is accomplished, as of yet, it is only partially realized by us. 
You have to let that maybe sink in. But I'll speak about that more in a moment. So the Lord's table, communion, as we call it, reminds us that we are yet awaiting the fullness of our redemption. So in a sense, every week, Matt said, as we take communion, we are both confessing what is finished and confessing what our longing is that awaits us. Because it is a shadow. Communion, this table is a shadow, a copy of what is true. And it is ours, but not yet finally and fully realized. Today I want to speak to you about another glorious shadow that awaits fulfillment at his second advent, and that is our adoption. I asked myself a number of questions this week as I was praying and thinking about this subject. Actually, longer than this week I've been thinking about it. What do we currently have? What has the Lord given us that points towards this great truth being realized, the great truth of adoption. What do we have right now that we would say is the shadow or the copy? And it is simply this, and Matt spoke of it a moment ago. It is the gathering of the local church. That is the shadow of the realized, the, the goal that we have in our heart of a full adoption. And I'm going to explain and unpack this for you in a moment if it doesn't make sense to you. But first of all, to understand this deep truth, this great truth, we have to begin and understand it theologically. And I'm not going to spend a great amount of time on the theology of adoption today, although it is hugely important and it is absolutely necessary because I want to speak to us more about the practical application and outworking of it. To understand it theologically, we must look at the book of Galatians. So look there with me, Galatians 4, verse 4. And this is what Paul writes to the Galatians. If you know, you remember this, that Galatians was written before Romans. Galatians is called by many theologians the mini-Romans, the, the precursor to the book of Romans. It's where Paul first began to speak of his revelation of, of, of uh, uh, faith and, and redemption by faith, salvation by faith through grace alone. And, and he speaks in Galatians about these truths of faith in Christ. And he writes in Galatians 4, verse 4, he says, When the fullness of time had come. I love that. I, love, I just love that statement. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Here's the incarnation. Born under the law. Just like every other Jew born in that day to redeem those who were under the law. Oh, now we're touching on something that is unique. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Brothers and sisters, this is the legal basis of our adoption. That we have been redeemed from the curse of the law, its demands, and the inability in the human 
heart in the human being apart from God to fulfill it and to obey it, which resulted in a curse, which resulted in death. To be redeemed from that curse by the Lord Jesus' sinless life and sacrificial death. Through his perfect obedience in living and his perfect love in dying. We have been redeemed from the legal requirement of the law and our inability and its resultant curse in humanity, in all of mankind, upon all of mankind. And so the Holy Spirit now indwells those who believe. And he indwells us, Paul teaches us, as the spirit of adoption. Bearing witness, and this is the key, to our hearts that we are children of God. And we'll look at that in a moment in Romans 8. So there is a goal to the process of adoption that is at the end of it, its goal. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But there first had to be a legal transaction that would take place, a legal transaction must take place for any adoption to happen. And in our case, spiritually, it was that the demands of the law had to be satisfied. So a young couple, when they have it in their heart, maybe their inability to have children or they do already have children and they want to adopt, they begin to have it in their heart to go through the process of adopting a child, and they decide they're going to adopt, but they can't just bring a child into their home and make that child their own without a legal transaction taking place, whereby, listen, they are given the right to call that child their own. They are given the right legally to call that child their own. God, too, had to adopt us legally. He had to go through a legal process, if you would put it in that, those terms, that included the law, just as it does in a court today, of the law being satisfied for that adoption to take place. And as is true so often today in our own world, adoption can be costly to the adopting parents. It was very costly to the father price had to be paid. And that price was not just the cost of the legal transaction, but Paul will tell us in other places, as Colossians 1, for example, that it was a ransom. It was a ransom that was paid to take that child out of captivity and to bring him into freedom, to bring countless children out of captivity and to bring them into freedom. A ransom price was paid, and it was paid by the Lord Jesus Christ as he gave his life for us. This was the transaction of the cross. This was redemption's transaction. Christ's death, Christ's blood, satisfying the legal requirement of the law. But unlike a couple who decide one day a husband and a wife look at each other and they say, yes, 
Let's adopt. They make a decision to adopt. Paul tells us that God had you and I in his heart from all eternity. Amazing. Listen to his words in Ephesians that Nate read in the beginning of our meeting from Ephesians 1, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Listen, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Brothers and sisters, if you today are a believer in Jesus Christ, and even for some of you who may be here who are not yet believers, but you will be one day, you must know this, that God chose you before the foundation of the world to be his own. And what that choosing meant was that he predestined you for adoption. Unlike the, the parents who say, let's adopt, and they decide to adopt together. No, it's always been in the heart of the Father. You have always been in the heart of the Father. I had something very interesting happen to me yesterday. I was sitting on an airplane flying from Orange County to Sacramento. And I was reading and praying and studying and thinking about these things. I was meditating, really, is what I was doing. And the Spirit of God came upon me in the airplane. And you know what I mean when I say that. It's like the Spirit of the Lord descended upon me, I felt. And I just was overwhelmed with, again, the reality that God chose me to be his own. And I've told you this before. When I was young, as a young boy, I felt different at times. I just had this sense that I was not like everybody else around me. And when you're a young kid, you, you, you get insecure about things like that. But I, as I got older, I, I realized that what that was, it was when I came to know the Lord, I realized it was the Spirit of God already letting me know that I was His. But it wouldn't be for many years later that I finally believed when I understood that. But I, I was chosen by God. I was set aside. I was set apart. You were chosen of God. You were set aside. You were set apart to be His own. And your life has always been purposed to be His. And now you are here today because you have believed. But you've believed because he chose you. It wasn't that you found him. It was that he found you. He called you. He chose you. And he didn't do it when you were 18 or 19 or 24 or 34 or 6 or 7. He did it before the world was created. This is grace. This is grace. This is what gives us, and I'll speak more of this in a moment, this is what gives us identity. These realities, these truths that we've been predestined for adoption through Christ to the, to the praise of his glorious grace. And so there had to be a legal transaction, but the legal transaction, though being necessary, was not the goal and is not ever the goal of the adoption. It's a necessary process. But the goal, listen, is the child becoming their own. 
and now being called by their name and becoming part of their family. The goal is family. The goal is to be loved. The goal is to be known. The goal is to be included in the family of God. That is the goal of God's adoption. That is the goal of redemption's work. Not simply that we would be forgiven of our sin, as important as that is. That was the necessary transactional part of it. The goal was that we would be family, that we would be his family, that we would be his own. And Paul understood this above all of the New Testament writers, and that is why he alone uses in the New Testament the Aramaic word Abba. No one else uses it but Paul. The Lord Jesus uses it when he prays and when he speaks in the Gospels, but Paul alone uses it in his writings. And it's the Hebrew, it's the Aramaic word for father. And you might have heard that it is an intimate expression of the word father along the lines of papa or daddy. And it is that. But in essence, what it means is simply father, familial. And it's the way that a heart cries out. It's the way that our heart now, Paul says, cries out in our relationship with God. You see, it's changed from the old to the new in one sense. In the old, it was God is who holy and awesome and fearful and, 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 and powerful Yes, all of those things. He remains the same today. But now he has become for us Abba by the Spirit of God's indwelling. He's brought us close to his heart. The goal was a family. And that family is what we call today the church. And just like every other family, it has its challenges. It has its disagreements. It has its potential for hurt, for being misunderstood. All of that is true. But above all, it is a family. And no matter what, it is a family. And Paul also tells us and teaches us that it is God's household. He uses that term. 1 Timothy 3.15 Paul writes this. He says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. If I happen to be delayed, I want you to know how one ought to behave in the household of God. We would send our kids away. We all do. We'd send them to someone's home. Send them away for the weekend. They're going to spend the night. We're going to leave them with someone. If we're traveling, what do we say to them? I want you to represent my family, our family well. I want you to represent our household rightly. We are of the household of God. And that speaks again of family, of identity, of, of gathering, of being together. So we have always longed as an eldership team to teach our church that the church is so much more than just an optional event in our week. 
This gathering is so much more than just an optional event in our week that we may participate in or not, depending on whether or not we are free that week. No. It's so much more than something we just simply attend, like a PTA meeting or a sporting event. It's familial. It's, it's got life to it. Which is one of the reasons we've placed such a high priority on covenant and membership. So that we can confess before one another that we understand this. And that we're committed beyond convenience. When our kids were young, we always wanted to have dinner together. And so without exception, every single night we would sit together and have dinner. Almost every single night of every single week. We'd sit around a table with our four children and we would eat together every night. And Kath and I would ask them how they were doing. We would listen to them. We would talk to them. Even when they got older. Because we wanted to keep in touch with our family. Because that being part of the family is not optional. It's life. To be part of the church and be part of the family of God is so much more than simply to be part of a group of people who don't ever really know me and whom I never really know. Where I can keep myself separate and distant and apart somehow because I really don't want to be known that deeply because maybe I've been hurt before in another church. No. We have to go beyond that. I said this two weeks ago. We're going to have to fight for community in the weeks and the months and the years ahead. In the world we're living in now, we're going to have to fight for Christian community. It will not come to us easily for a lot of reasons. The local church, the local church, not the church universal. The local church is literally a family, spiritually. It is God's family. It is the family of God. It's the children that he chose to be his own before the world was created and for whom he died. But not just any family. Family, Paul says, it is the pillar and foundation, the buttress of the truth. The goal of adoption was that a family would be born, a family would be created. And as Matt said last week, This confession of God's desire began as early as Abram to Abram in in Genesis. When when the Lord spoke it to Abram, I will be your God and you and your descendants will be my people. And he spoke it again and again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. That's the statement that God made repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. And then we get to the New Testament and we find it again. But we find it ultimately and finally in Revelation chapter 21. the culmination of the story of redemption. Let's read it together. It's on the screen, I believe. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. This is the goal of redemption. This is the goal of adoption. This is the goal of the heart of God for all that he is doing on the earth today. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. 
and the sea was no more. The sea representing the evil of humanity is what it represents. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Can you say amen with me? Amen. This is the goal of redemption, brothers and sisters. This is the goal of adoption. Redemption's goal was adoption. Adoption's goal was I will be their God and they will be my people. This is a type of that. This is the foreshadowing of what is true. The Bible calls it true. I love that. Hebrews 8, it's the true. The true. As opposed to what, Lord? The false? No. The incomplete, the partial, the shadow. This is the this is the essence, the true. This is the it has reality to it. I know many times we, we think, you know, it's all finished. We, we quote that text, you know, when Christ on the cross said it is finished. That's hugely important. Obviously, it is finished in the sense that the Lord Jesus came and he accomplished everything that he set out to accomplish. And so in, in reality, in one way, it is all finished. But in another way, it yet, re, it yet awaits its realization. And that is true of both redemption's work and of adoption. Paul says in Romans 8, put it up for me, 8.23. Listen, this is interesting. Speaking of creation groaning, Paul is speaking of creation groaning under the weight of sin in Romans 8. He says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. And listen, the redemption of our bodies. This is the end of redemption's work, your body being raised. This is the final result of redemption, the body being raised, then redemption is finished and adoption is complete on the new earth. And so it is absolutely biblically and theologically accurate to say, I have been saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. I have been redeemed, I am being redeemed, I will be redeemed. I have been adopted, I'm awaiting the realization of fullness of my adoption. We're living in between. That's why it's so stinking hard. 
That's why it's so difficult to live in between, to know that it is true, but we don't yet have it all, to understand that it's finished, but we don't see it yet finished, to have it done in one sense in faith and yet to long for it to be realized. It's so hard. It's so easy to lose our way because we get lost in the the in-between. But these things that we have as shadows of what are true, the communion table, this gathering, what we're going to speak of the next two weeks, these things that God has given us that are, are, are pictures of what are eternally true, they are meant to keep us on the way. They are meant to keep us on the path as we go through life. They are meant to keep us from straying too far from losing hope. From all eternity, this has been the Father's desire that his children before him would glorify him and make him known and experience his great love and grace for them. This is who we are today, the family. This is who you are today. You look around the room. This is the family of God. This is the household of God. This is a local family of God that God has put together. This is what gives the lonely identity. He places the lonely in families, Psalm 68.6 says. He is a father to the fatherless. That's not just a theological statement. That's a reality through adoption. Abba, Abba, Father. I'm so thankful Paul wrote that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I went to a Mormon church one time at a request of someone, and we went, went one evening, and I sat in that room, and I sat in that building as the Mormon ceremony was going on, and the thing that struck me the most was when the man prayed, one of the elders, God was a million miles away, and whatever God is for the Mormon. And as a believer, I sat there and I thought, my goodness, my God is so near to me. You know how near he is? Abba, near. Father, Father, he is my father. I am his son. That's my identity. That has been my identity. That is always my identity. That is where I always end up. I always end up on my knees. I am his son. He is my father. That is my identity. I am not a leader. I am not a pastor. I am not anything. I am a son of God. I am a child of God. He is my father. That is who I am. That is my identity. The church is many things, brothers and sisters. It is an army. It is a bride. It is a field. It is many things. But in God's heart, first and foremost, I believe it is his family. It is about belonging It is about loving God and being loved by God. It is that first and foremost. And when it comes to us now together, as I come in now to kind of bring it to a close, 
I want you to look at 1 Peter 1.22, and I'm going to have it on the screen because I want to read it from the New Living Translation. I love this. Peter writes this. He says, you were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your hearts. That's an apostle writing from the understanding of the spirit of adoption's work in the heart of the believer. And then the gathering of the many hearts into one that's called a family. And it's lived out in a local church. You may not know it right now, but you need each other. We need each other. Desperately. And I think in the days to come, we're going to understand that more and more. We need one another. And you know that saying, you know, when you're blood, you have each other's backs. We care for one another. We protect one another. We believe the best of one another. We don't speak evil of one another. We love one another with sincerity, not with feigned affection. And we love each other deeply. We may be very different. We may not have chosen to be in the family with one another in one sense, but we are. And now we love one another. And we look beyond our differences. We learn to bear with one another. We learn to put up with one another's idiosyncrasies. We learn to give each other the benefit of the doubt rather than believing the worst. We don't talk about one another. We don't gossip about one another. We don't put one another down to each other. We protect each other. We pray for one another. Amen. It's family. We're family. And we bear our hearts to one another as we learn to trust one another. And no one should feel as though they don't belong. We need to draw one another in to each other's lives. But as I close, I want to just say this by word of caution because of the day in which we're living. Lest we become too familiar with God through the term Abba. I've heard this in more and more in a lot of the circles that I've been around in the past where the word Abba is used and people pray it with a daddy um, attitude. Like, and even sometimes they just say, Father, Daddy, God, or Daddy, God, or things like that. I understand that. I do. And I want to be careful how I say this. But I want to say to you and to my own heart, we need to keep it also reverent in our relationship with the Father. I found a quote on a blog that I read this week, and I want you to read this. Just to, I'm just putting this at the end as kind of a, to keep it balanced biblically and healthy. And a lady named Karen Engel wrote this. She said, but we don't need Abba to mean daddy for the words to be marvelous on our lips. That the sovereign Lord of the universe would make us his children 
and allow us to call him by an intimate, familial name is astounding. It is better that Abba holds the intimacy of our adoption alongside the holiness of God. We don't want a father like our fathers. We want a perfect father who is high and lifted up. So I just say that to you and to me today, not to knock the edges off of the intimacy aspect, but it is an intimacy, a familial intimacy. It doesn't bring God down to a level that deprives him of his holiness and his awesomeness and his infinitude and those things that are worthy of him alone. He is not like an earthly father. Thank God. As good as they may be, they fall short. Brothers and sisters, look around the room. This is the family of God. Turn your heads. This is the family of God. These are brothers and sisters whom God has given you in family to love and to be loved by. Amen. Amen.